For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors. Uh, The year is 2015. It's 2015 right now. And uh, in 2015, most of us, uh, a lot of us, plenty of us, are writers. Whether you're working on a story or a novel, a press release, website copy, uh, white paper, you're just like uh, tweeting a lot, you're sitting with an email for work, it's been in your drafts for three days because you're just not quite sure how to make your point effectively, writing has become a huge part of our day-to-day responsibilities. And just like any skill, writing doesn't get better without instruction and practice. That's why Marketing Profs University has created the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. It's an online course. It starts June 11th, and you'll learn from over a dozen of the best and brightest instructors in the world of marketing writing. You get tons of great tips and new techniques. They will teach you how to reach your audience. And as a special offer to our listeners, if you go to mprofs.com slash longform and use the promo code longform, you'll get 200 bucks off when you enroll in the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. Plus, you'll also get over a grand worth of marketing prof seminars, classes, and video tutorials, all for free. So go check it out, mprofs.com slash longform. Thanks very much to them for uh, sponsoring the show. And uh, let's start that show. Here we go. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I am here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, guys. How's high going? energy. Yeah. I'm bringing, I, I, uh, sometimes it comes with low energy, sometimes with the high energy. Never know what you're going to get. <laughs> what about you, Max? Who did you talk to this week? Uh, this week is Alexis Akewo. Alexis is a freelancer. She's written for the Times Magazine and the New Yorker. Uh, she covers Africa. And... Uh, she has covered uh, Boko Haram quite a bit. She covered the kidnapping, and she lived in Nigeria for a while. For quite a while, yeah, yeah. three years. And she, but she's written stories sort of from all over uh, Africa. I'm not going to try and sort of distill the common theme between them now, but she has uh, pretty interesting thoughts on what that through line is. Fantastic. I think I might listen to this interview. <laughs> First time, the first time for this interview. Yes, it's just, just happened. I haven't. Oh, I, haven't, I didn't know uh, if you were gonna. If you oh yeah, no, first to time you can listen yeah. to anyone yeah. else's. A long time host, first time listener. <laughs> <laughs> what about sponsors, Aaron? If you want to jump up from being a listener to a broadcaster of your own ideas, there's no better way to do it than with a tiny letter newsletter. It's the simplest, yet also the smoothest, yet also the most powerful email newsletter service that you can set up within 60 seconds, I would guess. That's not a fact, but that's my guess. Under 60 seconds to a working newsletter. People sign up. You send it out to them. It's from the people at MailChimp. Check it out. Thank you, Tiny Letter. And now here's Max with Alexis Akewo. Hello, Alexis Akewo. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Okay, here's where I I think uh, it makes sense to start, which is this will come out one week and one year after the kidnapping, mm-hmm. the one-year anniversary mm-hmm. of the kidnapping of 300 
uh, Schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram. And you've covered that Mm -hmm. kidnapping extensively. And I guess just to start, I'm interested in where are these girls? Yeah, um, that's the question. I think it became clear sort of late last year or maybe even before then, that the girls weren't going to be rescued in some kind of mass rescue by the military. Because it was at a point where Boko Haram had these girls for several months and had said in videos and other propaganda that they had paired them off with their soldiers um, as sex slaves. And so these girls were likely spread out across a vast expanse of desert um, in Nigeria, Um, Cameroon, Niger, all these countries that border Nigeria and that are Boko Haram territory in a sense. Mm -hmm. And what's become a little disturbing now is that there are some reports that during a recent attack in northeastern Nigeria, Boko Haram fighters, while they were retreating from the Nigerian military and allied militaries that are fighting Boko Haram right now, that they killed many of their wives Um, in an attempt to prevent them from being rescued by the military and perhaps marrying non-Boko Haram members. And so some people are speculating that the Chibok girls were part of those wives who were killed, which, I mean, to be honest, is difficult for me to, to, to comprehend and to think about because, I mean, for me, this has become a very emotional story. And... You know, while it's depressing that these girls are spread out right now, I'd prefer to believe that they're alive at least, and that some, as girls in the past who have been kidnapped by Boko Haram, may escape. Mm-hmm. You know, not all of them, but maybe some of them. So these are uncon- unconfirmed reports, and we don't know where they are or what their status is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just in you talking about that. You know, sources say, and we've heard some reports, but these are unconfirmed. How do we figure out? what's really happening there. I mean, it feels like the work that you've done, particularly around Boko Haram, is trying to answer that question. But if you don't know what's happening there, like how can anyone know what's happening there? Well, that's the problem. For, for a long time, for most of last fall and winter, uh, northeastern Nigeria was almost completely inaccessible by outsiders. So Boko Haram was going in, attacking villages and towns, seizing the territory and literally occupying it ISIS style. And people couldn't get in to find out how many people were dead, what happened to these people, what kind of conditions people were living under occupation were enduring. And so we were just relying on people who had made it out, refugees, eyewitness accounts, but those are always unreliable. You know, one guy will say, oh, I saw, in the case of attack early in January, you know, I saw 2,000 bodies. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful, but how do we, how can we confirm that? Especially when the Nigerian military and the government are not only unwilling to give us access or confirm any numbers, but they're they, they were hostile to us. You know, they were actively trying to prevent us from reporting on this story and finding out what happened there. Yeah, there's one uh, one line uh, from one of your sort of early reports for The New Yorker on the kidnapping, and uh, you're sort of like going down that spiral you were just describing in, in all of the ways that the truth is being sort of barricaded mm-hmm. in the story. And, and uh, there's this paragraph that just ends, what is happening there that we cannot see? And reading through all of your stuff, that feels like... 
uh, one of the kind of central questions is just it's uh, so much of this is opaque. Mm-hmm. So much of this is uh, hard to uh, even get reliable information from that you wonder, you know, what what else is out there. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, when that first happened last April, it was kind of surreal. I mean, because a lot of attacks had been happening in Boko Haram territory with not much attention. And this obviously seemed more unusual than anything else. But then the next day, the military said, we got them. We rescued the girls. And, you know, a lot of Nigerians on Twitter were like, okay. Uh, and, and then it proved to be false. And meanwhile, I was in Senegal. I was, um, you know, on the coast of West Africa, you know, not, it was, which is really not that close to Nigeria. Yeah. And so I was kind of watching it for a far, from afar for the first one or two weeks, just, you know, assuming that a resolution would come about and then also assuming that there would be more detailed reports about what actually happened. Right. Because but this is also the story that, like, this is the story that has sort of broken out globally exactly. about Boko Haram. But you must have been hearing about things like this. Exactly. Sort of all the time before that. Right. And I had been trying to, I wasn't covering northeastern Nigeria, but I was covering uh, a part of Nigeria called the Middle Belt, where there had been an increasing number of Boko Haram attacks. But I mean, you know, I would write occasional dispatches, but there wasn't much interest at the time. You know, no one was really banging on my door to publish these. <laughs> so, you know, I was used to kind of an indifference from abroad and also within Nigeria, too, to be honest. And so, you know, during those first few weeks, there wasn't that much coverage aside from permanent reporters within Nigeria from like the Wall Street Journal and other places and the agencies. And I got really frustrated. I, you know, I started feeling sort of helpless, like wondering, you know, how can I somehow cover this? Um, And you were in Senegal? Yeah, and I was in Senegal. To find a place to cover it, does that mean you have to like basically effectively pitch an editor Right. In New York, right. So I pitched to editor in New York, and um, and I pitched to her that I wanted to go up there. Um, I wanted to get to Northeast Nigeria to this town and find out what happened. And she got back to me, and she said, "There's no way we can send you there. You know, just logistically, like it, this would be extremely dangerous for you." And actually, at the time, I was pitching a website, so they didn't have the budget mm-hmm. to do that. Do you think it was about the budget or about the safety? I think it was both. Yeah. Because this was um, an editor I'd worked with quite a bit, and I knew she was worried that... I mean, it was probably stems from the budget, right? So if they had a budget to send me, then they could have provided the... The, the security, safe, Exactly. Yeah. And so... And then I was realizing, you know, a lot of my colleagues weren't even able to get up there anyway. So I knew the next best thing was phone calls. And so I spent, like, a long weekend calling journalists... Nigerian journalists in the Northeast, then they're referring me to other local residents and then calling them and then trying to find girls who had escaped and then trying to find parents of girls who had been kidnapped and just calling and calling for days and on end and having the strangest experiences, you know, people hanging up on me and asking me how dare I call them to ask about their missing daughters and who do I think I am? And then other people who wanted to talk and then other people who were too traumatized. And it was just... It was a very singular experience. I mean, it sounds surreal to be there, but not there. And and, people listening should know that you lived in Lagos. You lived in Nigeria for years. Right, right, right. So it wasn't like like you were calling a place you didn't know. Exactly. And and then then a couple weeks later, I was actually able to get up uh to to the town where the girls were Can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, the difference in that? And, And how can you trust reporting that in a situation like that that you're doing over the phone? 
Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I knew was that the first person I was going to reach out to was had to be someone I trusted. And the bad person I reached out to is, in my opinion, the best reporter in, in Northeast Nigeria. He's been doing the most amazing work on, on Boko Haram. What's his name? His name is Hamza Idris. I mean, when I first met him in the Northeast, God, now it must have been almost two years ago, he was just copying in his car and going to these sites of massacres, you know, where other people would be too afraid to go because he wanted to talk to people. He wanted to see what was happening. And um, I know I annoyed him so much, you know, because I would literally call him every day asking for phone numbers. But he knew, you know, I was just trying to do what he was doing and put these stories out there. And so I, I had that trust in him. And then, you know, when you start talking to the residents of that town, you know, they didn't really have much reason to lie to me. They wanted coverage. They they wanted something to be done about their daughters, right. their nieces who were gone. And the Nigerian government was just, you know, being useless. And did they understand who you were? Or, or is it just like yeah. anyone who's interested in this we want to talk yeah. to? Yeah, I mean, it, especially in the beginning, that changed later. But in the beginning, you know, they're just like, oh, okay. Because especially, you know, because I have an American accent. They were like, white person calling from abroad. Yes, like, let me tell you our story. We'll put you in touch with whoever we can. Not everyone's going to talk to you, but we'll do what we can. That later changed towards the end as many journalists from all over began to call them and began to ask really insensitive things and mm-hmm. sort of exploitative ways. And just help me understand what those phone calls are like. Like, how do you not say insensitive things? Like, what's, right. what's your approach when you're calling someone on the phone whose daughter has just been kidnapped? Right. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was actually thinking about this when um, a fact checker the New Yorker, I think, was listening to one of those interviews because I, it must have just sounded like the most awkward thing, you know, because I'm, I'm calling and um, I introduce myself and I ex- explain who referred me to him or her. And, you know, I, I express my sympathy, my condolences. And then I try to start asking questions as gingerly as possible. And then, you know, to keep in mind, also trying to say in, in not in my type of English, but in, in, in a local type of English that people can understand is in that region. And, you know, I'm often repeating my questions. Mm-hmm. And then still at the end, you know, one, one, one father was just like, you know, who do you think you are? And just was like, don't call me again. Um, while other people were receptive. But it was it was an awkward conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple weeks, uh, a couple weeks later, you were able to go. Yeah, a couple weeks later, I was able to go. Do you go find the same people that you'd been talking to? One of the people I talked to, his none of his daughters or nieces had been kidnapped, but he had been helpful in connecting me to parents. So we planned to meet up, and then I drove with him and his brother from the major city in the Northeast, which at that time was, and still is, relatively safe. A lot of journalists were being flown in there on the governor's plane. But to get to that town, Chibok, it was incredible. It was quite dangerous. And he and um, his relative picked me up, and then we drove there on a market day. Uh, I say a market day because there were more cars on the road, so we Mm -hmm. thought that would be a safer day. And we... Yeah, we just drove in, and I stayed at his house. Can you describe what uh, what exactly is dangerous about that drive? Yeah, so in the Northeast, it's, it's, it's a huge amount of space, and a lot of it is a scrubland. A lot of it is, is not that densely populated. So, 
from 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 the major city in the northeast when you're going to a town like Chibok where the girls were kidnapped you're going on these roads where a lot of the time Boko Haram has ambushed these 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 roads and they've kidnapped passengers and killed them and the military has a couple of checkpoints in the beginning. So you go out of the city and there are a couple of checkpoints and then all of a sudden there's no checkpoints. And it's just this huge expanse of road from between these two locales where you're just kind of on your own. There's, there's, there's no military. You know, there's open scrubland on either side of the road where potentially there could be an ambush. And, you know, every once in a while you see another car and you're like, okay, thank God, maybe it's okay ahead. I saw young boys on the road riding their bicycles and in their hands they had bows and arrows. It's tense. What was the conversation like in the car? I mean, <laughs> were you guys talking? We were, we were, and um, like, like uh, small talk. A little bit. I mean, I was asking him about his family. He was asking me, me about you know myself, where I'm from. He's a lovely guy. And then every once in a while I would freak out. So there was this truck of vigilantes who sort of zoomed ahead of us and they stopped on the road and they were carrying these sort of um, like rifles and they get out and all of a sudden they start shooting into the into the bush and I freak out I'm like oh my god what's happening and the guy I'm with says oh they're just shooting animals they're hunting and I'm like is this the time for them to be doing that (laughs) as we're you know on this tense road between to relatively dangerous places. But I mean, otherwise it was fine. You know, every once in a while you'd pass out, I mean, you'd, you'd pass a vehicle that was a burned out shell and that would remind you, okay, this is, this is Boko Haram land. But I mean, we got there safe. Uh, we, we, we did the interviews. I interviewed a couple more girls who had been escaped. And then we went back to his house and met, I hung out with this lovely family. We had dinner and then it was time to go to bed because the electricity went out. And they were gracious and gave me their bed, but I couldn't really sleep that night, to be honest. <laughs> and then we left early the next morning. So you were only there for a night. Yeah, we were there for yeah for like a day and night. What was the air like there? When what what was what was that town? Where a couple of weeks after three hundred right girls had been kidnapped. Well, it was surprisingly busy. A a lot of residents of other villages that had been recently attacked were flooding in and staying with friends and family in Chibok. Um, there was still business going on, activity during the day. Yeah. Life was going on as normal because Chibok hadn't been attacked again yet. Uh, I think the situation is different there now. But it was surprisingly, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting to see that life still goes on. People didn't want to leave their homes yet if they didn't have to because everything they had was there. As that story begins to become this sort of international story and bring our girls back movement starts happening and Michelle Obama starts mm-hmm. talking about it. How do you as someone who has, you know, one of the few Western journalists has been to the town, who's been covering Nigeria for years, how do you approach reporting on that story once it becomes a sort of huge story? What what I try to focus on was always making sure that the story was told from a human point of level that that, that there were still Nigerian voices at the center, because it was something like this. It, it can tend to feel like this far off, gory conflict with no end and no logic, and you, and you can lose sight of the people who are at the heart of it, who are either fighting against it, 
you know, I, I felt like that wasn't emphasized enough that there is some positivity. People are standing up to this. And that also, you know, people are human at the end of the day. They're, they're just trying to live their normal lives amid all this chaos. That these people are just like you and I in crappier circumstances. Yeah, significantly crappier. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the piece that you wrote for the Times Magazine in November, sort of about the vigilante movement against mm-hmm. Boko Haram. And in your New Yorker coverage, there was this moment, sort of two-thirds of the way through all of those dispatches, I, at least I found, that the tone would shift and you'd kind of move from uh, reporting to outrage. Right. Maybe it's a word. And right. I mean, you said earlier that it, it was emotional for you and that would that would come out in those New Yorker mm-hmm. pieces at the mm-hmm. end. And obviously there's a connection there because your outrage was with the government and with mm-hmm. the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed like you sort of gravitated towards this other side of the story, which was what are sort of normal people doing? Mm-hmm. When, you're, when your government doesn't have your back, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how you found that story, how you uh, gained trust with those folks, how long you spent with them. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you described it well. I, I did, I did have a lot of outrage. I still do, unlike other stories I do in Africa or elsewhere. This was personal to me. You know, I, I'm, I'm writing a story about. To be honest, it felt like girls who could have been me, right? You know, I, I'm Nigerian. I didn't grow up in Nigeria, but it, it just felt personal. You know, and the people I'm working with, whose, whose relatives are being killed. You know, as I meanwhile try to get comment from the government and military who are either feeding me lies or just saying utter nonsense. So w- when I when I went up to do that vigilante story, I didn't know I was going to do that story. I actually thought that perhaps the story I would do there would maybe focus on some other girls who had escaped and and um, figuring out how they're adjusting to life back. What, well, oh, that's interesting. What, what does that pitch look like to the Times then? Yeah, so I, I was talking with the editor and I was just saying... Um, you know, I, I want to go to Chibok and I want to talk to some more of the girls who've escaped. I talked to quite a few, but I want to talk to more just to see if I could paint a fuller picture of what happened, not only that night, but in the days afterwards. What was Boko Haram doing to these girls with mm-hmm. them? Where did they take them, et cetera? And then you get up there and you f- find that maybe there's a different story to tell? Yeah. So I get up there and actually, it was I think it was even a broader story because it was just, I think, about abduction by Boko Haram in general. So when I first got to the Northeast, I'd arranged to talk with a couple of men who Boko Haram had either attempted to kidnap or kidnapped for various reasons, forced recruitment or punishment or revenge. And the guy who brought them to me, who sort of facilitated the meeting, was this vigilante commander. And he was just, he was like really, he was a little strange at first because we were doing these interviews and he kept jumping in and editorializing and like speaking for them. And I was, you know, telling him, relax, you know, let me, let me finish these interviews. Very quickly, I saw that this guy was pretty interesting too. As these interviews were going on, he gets a phone call that they like caught a book around suspect, and he has to run out. Yeah, there's a moment in that story where they right. where they go, and I, I was like, Alexis, why didn't you go? Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, because I, I didn't know actually that he was going to be the story at that yeah. time. Uh, yeah, I didn't know until a few days later, and then I met up with him, and then I spent time with him. Help me, like, 
see that scene? You know, are you up there by yourself? Yeah, I went up there by myself. So what was happening is that there used to be a commercial flight from Lagos or the capital Abuja. I mean, just basically there used to be a commercial flight to this northeastern city called Maiduguri. It's the largest city in the northeast, and it's the birthplace of Boko Haram. It's where Boko Haram began, and I'd been there before. But once things got too hairy, once Boko Haram actually attacked the airport there, of course, the commercial flight stopped. So that was part of the reason that I was mentioning before in that story that it just felt like the Northeast was now physically isolated. Yeah. Because the other option was to go on the roads, but Boko Haram was attacking the roads. But luckily, the governor of that state, Borno, where, where that city is located, he, of course, was using his private plane to go back and forth between the capital and, and Maiduguri. And he was offering journalists seats on that plane. So during that specific time, you could get a seat on his chartered plane there. How do you get a seat on that guy's plane? Yeah, so you would just contact his security protocol, this actually really lovely guy, and he would set it up. And it was their incentive was, you know, they were kind of at odds with the federal government. The federal government was trying to blame the governor for the kidnapping, right. you know, claiming, oh, you northern politicians are Good luck, somehow Jonathan. In, exactly, are somehow in cahoots with Boko Haram. So he wanted journalists to come in and show, look, you know, what's really happening. So I got I got up there. Yeah, I was by myself, and then I just stayed at the hotel I'd stayed at before, which was mo- where most journalists usually stayed because the military liked to stay there. So at least felt a little bit safer. Yeah, it's like a, just real like a cheap security if you can't afford it otherwise. Exactly. But being up there by yourself as a woman, are there challenges associated with that? Well, I wouldn't say so in the in, in the normal sense. You know, not not culturally or in, or anything. No, no. I, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, there, there are other difficulties of, of being a woman reporting Nigeria, but in that particular case. What are the other difficulties? I mean, the other difficulties is that, you know, Nigeria is a deeply sexist country. So it can be difficult for people to take you seriously. But on the other hand, that also has its benefits because it's very easy to disarm your subjects. If I'm interviewing people in the military or bankers or whoever who underestimate me, it I can get them to open up because they somehow think that I'm naive or I don't know what I'm doing. Right, they think it's like some school project. Yeah, exactly. And then I get a lot of what I want. And so I don't mind in a sense. I, you know, I don't mind if some, you know, sexist general or banker or whoever thinks that I'm just this young little student who doesn't know what she's talking about. As long as you tell me what I want to know, like, it's Great. I mean, Good deal. You know, so. Sorry, I took you on a little tangent there. Yeah. Let's, get, let's get back to, yeah, to, so, to your book. So, you, so you're, you're, uh, you flew in on the governor's plane, mm-hmm. and uh, you've got this guy sitting in on your interviews, right. and all of a sudden you sort of realize, like, hey, this guy's more interesting than the people I'm interviewing. Right. Yeah, because so I, cause I had that interview with them, I think that was on a Sunday, and the next day I went to Chibok, and that's where I wanted to focus it on. And then I got back. And then we were texting again, and then I just decided that this guy is... I mean, I've, I talked a little bit about the girls in the piece, but yeah. it was mainly about this guy. And do you have, like, a fixer with you? Not that time, no. Yeah. The first time I'd been there, I did. Although we had a fight and <laughs> kind of parted ways the second to last day. <laughs> what was the fight about? I mean, that was another instance of sexism, I think, because he, you know, he thought he knew best, and I, you know, I knew what I wanted to cover. I wanted to cover these workers, these doctors at a hospital there where a lot of bodies were coming in 
likely of innocent young men who were being detained by the military. And he was just not getting, you know, getting us what we needed. And he was clashing with me a lot, you know, as, as if he knew best. So I was just like, you know what, let's, you know, we had a fight and then we parted ways. And then I still hadn't had what I needed, but then the next day I got it all. I just hooked up with this um, one, actually he was a soldier, but he offered to drive me to the hospital even because there was a curfew going on and he could get me through. And then I just, I didn't have any appointments because the phone lines were down, but I just ended up finding everyone I needed and doing it like that. I, I'm sorry, I, like, I, <laughs> this is all so fascinating to me and like, it's very hard for you to imagine. Right. Would, like, how did you just find people? Like, right. when, when you show up in a town, you like hitch a ride with a soldier. <laughs> And show up in, I mean, part of what I'm hearing is just like, you do whatever the fuck you need to do to like get there right. and find your people. But when you show up in a, in a town like that, like, how do you make sense out of that chaos? Like that story you just described about like the vigilantes on the side of the road, mm-hmm. like hunting and just shooting at bushes. Right. I feel like the natural human response in that situation is just to be like, oh, fuck this. <laughs> fuck this. Like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't care who those fucking guys are. Fuck this. And I'm interested in how you do the opposite. Like, how do you make sense of those moments or in that town? Yeah, well, I think, again, it's just having about having trust in the people you're with. Um, I knew this guy who was a resident of Chibok who had picked me up when we were driving together. He's, he's a father. He's a husband. He's not some daredevil. You know, he knew that I am not, you know, I'm not a war reporter. I'm not jumping into, you know, he, we, we were on the same kind of level. So I saw that he's still calm and that he's, you know, trying to explain me what's going on. So that let me stay calm, you know, to an extent, yeah. you know, and, and then we just kept going. Now that I think about it, it really is about having this insane amount of trust in people that you get to know during your reporting. And, you know, I'm still in touch with him if I ever go back, which I plan to, you know, he'll be who I call again to to, to meet up with. How do you uh, handle that sort of like hopping in and hopping out of stories, hopping in and out and out of countries? Like we were recording this in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You just took your first uh, apartment mm-hmm. in, what, three years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're now a resident of New York. Right. Mazel tov. But for instance, the, the kidnapping story, which is now back in the news, how do you navigate these kind of dual lives and and following the story both from afar and then dropping in. Yeah. Do you feel like you're like managing kind of like two lives all the time? It still feels like one life, but but it's interesting because when I left Nigeria uh, this past time, part of it was because I wanted to do stories from other places. You know, I've worked in Central America before. I would love to get back to doing stories from there. But it's really impossible to sort of just drop a place like that. <laughs> you know, every every time I see a story, of course, I'm reading it. I'm, you know, I follow my journalist friends on Twitter who are there and, you know, religiously reading their tweets and, and things like that. And, you know, and, and it's also part of a book I'm working on. So it's also uh, in my mind a lot, too. So it's impossible, I realize, to completely drop in. And, and I don't think maybe I necessarily want to. The other side of dropping in is leaving and mm-hmm. reading through your stuff, like, the, you know, being in these towns after these attacks, talking to these people who are in the midst of such sort of incredible trauma. I was thinking about how it must feel to leave, like to know that you get to leave. Right. I mean, I was, so I was in Mauritania 
the beginning of last year, I was writing about anti-slavery activists there. Yeah. It was a story where I became somewhat close with the people. I mean, not necessarily the guy I was writing about, but the guy I was working with, who was working as my translator, who was part of the movement as well. Even though we were so different from different countries and things like that, there was some, some kind of bond. Like, they felt a bond towards me because of our shared skin color and things like that, and, you know, be, me being from a country where there's history of slavery. And, you know, to then leave after at the end of, after some weeks, and be like, okay, I'll, I'll leave you to your struggle <laughs> while I, you know, go back to Lagos. I mean, it, it was it was a lot. And then, you know, they were actually, a bunch of those guys were just arrested a couple months ago and will be in jail perhaps for a couple of years. And I, it, you just feel, you feel horrible because, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, the story, while it did do some good, you know, I remember we got a they got a lot of donations, which was nice, but the government just sort of used it as, you know, part of it as, as a backlash. Oh, really? Well, Context here is that it was a piece in The New Yorker mm-hmm. last fall. Yeah. I mean, no, I was not specifically because of the article, but there was a lot of attention, again, focused on slavery in Mauritania, and the activists were leading, they were doing some kind of rally or something. Um, and the government just swooped in and arrested them and put them away, and it was very disheartening. I want to know a little bit more about uh, how you ended up doing this work. What prompted you to move to Lagos? Oh, uh, well, I thought I should finally give it a chance because I'd lived in Africa before, but in East Africa, which I call Starter Africa, <laughs> because it's you know a nice climate, it uh, works very well. And I'd always been scared off by other people about Nigeria including my parents, who are Nigerian. I got a small grant to write about some religious violence there, and I used that as an opportunity to just go and see what it was like for myself. And I grew very addicted to Lagos, so it's an addictive place. Yeah, you just wrote uh, this great piece in, in Grant is sort of just about the city and all of its right. sort of glory and fucked up Right. When you got there, mm-hmm. how do you start sort of making a life for yourself there? Well, I actually was pretty lucky because... When I was there, I was renting a room in an artist's house that I only knew about from another friend who's a photographer who was doing a residency there. And from there, I really met a good group of people who later became pretty good friends of mine. And it's a very small, um, it's not its not really an expat scene, but it's called a repat scene. Um, Nigerians who like grew up abroad or studied abroad and who have moved back. And there's a small scene of that. And from there, you know, you can figure out where to sublet rooms yeah. and how to navigate. And So there's a sort of built-in community for exactly. you there. Exactly. You describe yourself as Nigerian. Your parents are Nigerian. Mm-hmm. But you actually grew up in Alabama. Yeah. I was born in Texas and grew up in Alabama. Where in Alabama? In Montgomery. I don't know. What was it like growing up in Montgomery with two Nigerian parents? <laughs> it was, I mean, that's where I felt like I lived two lives. Because at home, you know, it was all Nigeria all the time, and the food and the music and the culture. My parents belonged to this association made up of a lot of other West Africans, and we'd have parties together, and it was really steeped in Nigerian culture. And then at school, you know, it was completely different. <laughs> you know, in high school, there'd be boys wearing shirts with Confederate flags on it. You know, it was just, 
it was it was two worlds and it was figuring out as a kid how to juggle these two things but i mean alabama it's not a bad place to grow up there were good good people there how'd your folks end up in montgomery they actually met in alabama they were both uh college students who had come from nigeria at various points and of course found each other there (laughs) and yeah and then they moved around the south they had me in Texas and then eventually moved back to Alabama. You got brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two younger brothers. And when you were there, sort of like with all this Nigerian culture in the house, were you, were you, did you want to go back? Did you want to go live there? Was that in your mind, like even when you were in high school? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, my, our parents took us there when we were 11 for Christmas. And it was cool, I guess, but I was just like, man, why aren't we in a, at home right now? Trying to go home. Christmas tree. And then, and then I didn't go back till I was maybe 22 mm-hmm. uh, for like a week or two. But I was just kind of ambivalent about the place. When did that change? Well, that changed after I had actually spent some time abroad. So after I left college and I moved to Uganda, and that was my real first experience of Africa. And uh, it was a great like stepping stone, like a great experience. I had so much fun there. And then I realized, you know... I could do Nigeria. And I'm also curious about it because, you know, I'm in Uganda and I'm in Kenya and uh, I blend in and people think I'm them. But then I also have to always have to explain, no, you know, I'm black American with roots in Nigeria. And then I thought, you know, what would it be like to be in a place where I actually could say, yeah, I I am Nigerian. I am part of this place. I'm curious about why you were uh, drawn to Uganda and Kenya, not Nigeria at the beginning. Well, it's actually kind of by chance. I was finishing college, and there was this internship program. There was placing graduates at nonprofits across Africa, and there was one newspaper position. And I knew I wanted to be a journalist at that point, and so I applied for it. And it was at the state-run newspaper in Uganda, <laughs> and I got it. You were like, "I'd like to cover gay rights." <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, and they were like, "No." Um, but I went and and I didn't know anything about Uganda, East Africa. Af- I mean, I hadn't taken any African studies classes. I was just I just knew I liked to travel. Was it just like kind of a whim? Yeah. <laughs> and my parents were looking at me like, uh, we thought you were going to law school. What's happening here? <laughs> um, but I went and, and it was great because I had so much freedom. I was a junior reporter. And they would pair me with these like old veteran guys who had covered like the, the Lord's Resistance Army War and wars in Congo and dodged bullets. And I thought these guys were the coolest people ever. And you know, I'd follow along on stories. And then eventually, I could do my own. And they, I could go anywhere in Uganda and do something. And I just thought that was the best thing. And so I did the internship for nine months. And then the guy I was dating at the time, he was a correspondent for Reuters. And that, to me, at the time, was the dream job. I wanted to be an agency correspondent in Africa because you could just do anything you wanted. And he taught me a little bit how to start freelancing so I could stay in Uganda. And my first freelance client was the Mail and Guardian in South Africa. This actually really great newspaper there. Fantastic newspaper. Yeah, and I was I was so happy, and I started doing things for them for the Christian Science Monitor, which at that time was like one of the best places for international stuff. They would take your work. Time.com at that time was doing a lot of international stuff. So I, I was, you know, making it work back then. I'm interested in that in that moment when you start freelancing for, I guess, the Mail and Guardian is a slight exception, 
uh, although it really reads like a Western newspaper, I think. True. How you think about stories, uh, both that editors will go for and that you think readers will be interested in. Like, uh, there is this whole uh, narrative about stories from Africa and Mm -hmm. journalism from Africa and how uh, these stories get buried even when they are of an incredible scale, scale far bigger than what you'd see in like Europe or the States or whatever, uh, the stories get buried. And so I'm interested in how you learned at that point to sort of find stories that Mm -hmm. could catch. Yeah, it was a learning process because at first I was so used to writing for Ugandan audience that, you know, I would forget you have to provide history and context to these other things, to these stories for publications abroad. And then I realized they weren't interested in all the things that Ugandans were interested in. And in fact, in Uganda, they, were in, they weren't interested in much. Um, they, the one thing that a lot of people were at that time is that the war with the LRA, Joseph Kony's rebel group, had just ended in Uganda. And so a lot of people were interested in that. Yeah. So I figured out how to to pitch that, you know, which actually it wasn't that hard as far as the aftermath of the war. And then at that time, you know, a very key trick was learning how to pitch it for multiple people and then write, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the same, <laughs> not the same article, but different, different, you would, you would go on a trip and you would do multiple stories. There was no this like going on one trip and writing one story yeah. and, you know, you had to make it work. Are you at this point, like filing dispatches, like like uh, sort of yeah. hard news, or yeah, you still... oh, I was the total hard news because I even that second year I became the Uganda stringer for AFP, so I was like yes because they would pay my expenses. Right, that was the dream job. That was the dream job. So were you like I'm just going to live in Uganda? Yeah, but then what happened was is that a my wanderlust, which was just like uh, two years is approaching here, and the thing is with foreign journalists in any country they start to rotate out after like three to four years, and all my friends were rotating out, going to Nigeria, to Iraq. And, you know, I was starting to feel like, hmm, should I, you know, I was feeling maybe I should be trying somewhere new. Whereas now thinking back, you know, maybe I should have stayed longer and whatever. But I decided that I wanted to go to another place where there weren't necessarily a lot of journalists because I didn't want a ton of competition, but that there would be maybe more American interest. So I decided on Cuba. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds totally romantic and appealing. Exactly. And I rationalized it because I, I, I got a Nigerian passport specifically for this because it's really easy to get a Nigerian passport, even if you've never lived there, but if your parents are Nigerian. So I thought, I'll go into my Nigerian passport. But then I got to the border or to the airport, and they said, actually, you can't use it because you need a visa as a Nigerian. So I had to use my American passport anyway. <laughs> But the media center, they gave me accreditation on my Nigerian passport. And I was able to do a couple of dispatches from there. From Cuba. Yeah. But the problem was is that they wouldn't give me permanent accreditation because I was freelance. And they said they needed to know who I was writing for, Uh for me to live there. And they said, oh, you can always come back. So were you just like writing like crazy? Well, like, I mean, I didn't write that many because it was only two weeks. I only wrote two things. Oh, I meant like letters to people being like, oh. please just say I'm on staff. Well, yeah, I... I have a friend who uh, worked from Shanghai for a long uh, time and she uh-huh. needed like a, the same kind of thing uh-huh. to be like accredited. And uh, 
she had like a standing gig with Plastics News, <laughs> just like the like plastic industry trade journal. And that was like what got her. Then she was writing for like Harper's and right, the Times, all these right. places. But it was like Plastics News was like the thing on her visa. Right. So were you looking for your Plastics News? Yeah, I did. I mean, my let, initial letter was from a newspaper in Kenya called the East African. And they had gotten me my initial accreditation. I didn't even ask them for a permanent one because it turned out that Cuba was way more expensive than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and it had pretty much depleted most of my funds at that point because, you know, there are two currencies. One is a tourist currency. And that is, you know, it was higher than the dollar. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, let me let me just go. And I thought, <laughs> so you had like a, like a two-week Cuban dream. <laughs> exactly. And then I thought, okay, what's my second choice? Haiti. Like, Haiti's always been very fascinating to me. I look up the flights, almost $1,000. I'm like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. You didn't have just, like, uh, tons of savings <laughs> from your time in Uganda? Yeah, no. I mean, I was like, well, how old was I? I guess 24 or so. And I ended up meeting with, I think, the AP bureau chief in Havana and asking for advice. And he said, you know, why don't you go to Mexico City? There are a lot of stories in Mexico. Yes, there are a lot of freelancers, but, you know, I'm sure you'll find your own niche. And I had a return ticket back to Mexico anyway, so I thought, why not? <laughs> and I went and I stayed in a hostel there for two weeks. I met two American girls who were also moving there. We got a place, and I stayed for almost two years. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your uh, Cuban dream turned into a Mexican dream. It did. I'd never been there before, but it turned out to be great. But towards the end of that, it was interesting. It was the first time I started thinking about like career trajectories mm -hmm. in a kind of loose way. And I started thinking, you know, do I want to be doing this forever, like news freelancing? Because it's, it's, it's a hustle. So you're sitting there in Mexico and wondering about uh, your career. Was there, was there part of you that like, I'm just going to go to a different fucking continent every yeah. couple of years yeah, and figure it out and figure out how to report from there? Was that like yeah. an appealing path? Yeah, that was. But also the, the kind of like like the A-type section of my brain was like, oh, but why don't you put in some applications in New York just so you can get that kind of experience too? Because maybe it'll help with contacts. Because, I mean, I, I back then had a very aggressive pitching policy. You know, I was the total blind pitcher who would find editors' contacts on any way I could and then harass them until I got an assignment. But, you know, I was like, it would be nice to have, you know, maybe more contacts and actually know their faces and perhaps have actual relationships with people. Is that like, do you feel like that's the only way to do it when you're like a young yeah. reporter abroad? Is yeah. there, is there, or is that just like Alexis style? No, I, <laughs> I think it is because, you know, in the beginning I would have this process where I'd pitch people and I'd include my resume and, you know, a little bio and people want to respond to that. So I just learned that you have to, you know, A, of course, have this very compelling pitch and then obviously just follow up and harass people. I mean, the only time Edder has complained to me about me harassing them was this one woman who snapped at me and who was like, you have to give me 48 hours to read an email. And I was like, all right. <laughs> okay, I'll not pitch you anymore. Right. <laughs> Although I did end up working for her once, so. Okay, so you're at this moment, big uh, fork in the road. Yeah. You're going to, like, go to some other foreign place or mm -hmm. are you going to go to New York yeah. and get your get your credentials? Well, I mean, actually, I, I did go to another foreign place. I went to Kenya, but then a month in, I found out I had an interview at a magazine in New York. So then I came back. Which I thought, magazine in New York? At the New Yorker. Ah. 
What to do? What to be an editorial assistant? To yes. do, and so you took the job. Yes, I took the job. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, it just you know, I mean, it, it, it made sense. I mean, to try something new and see what that would be like, see the other side of it. Yeah, what was that like? So going from like living with some friends in Mexico <laughs> City, doing kind of whatever you wanted, I assume. Yeah. To like having to go to Times Square every day. Right, yeah. I mean, just the, the structure at first was like a shock. It was like, whoa. I remember chatting with friends abroad and being like, I have to wake up this time every morning and be in this office. And, you know, the, the structure was just, it was, it was uh, hard to adjust to in the beginning. But eventually, you know, you do adjust. Did you miss reporting? Yeah, I missed a lot. So, I mean, when I, when I was there, I, I did, I remember the website was just starting up. And like Amy Davison was uh, one of the news editor, and I think she was happy. I was just like pitching all these things. So I was just like, I have to write something somehow, and uh, and it wasn't the same, of course, but it fulfilled something. Scratched a little bit of the itch. Exactly. What were you doing otherwise? Oh well, I I mean I so I got to read a lot, which was nice. Um, you know, got to see pieces that came in in the very beginning and see how they were molded to to how they ended up, which was so enlightening. And then also, you know, being able to sit on editorial meetings and see the kind of ideas that I was accepted. Mm-hmm. It was like something as simple as stories, not subjects, was like, whoa, oh, okay. <laughs> so that's how she, File that away. Yeah. And then the editor I was assisting, you know, whenever he wrote things, I, would, I could help with research and things like that. And so... Who are we talking about? Oh, David Rummick. <laughs> so I, I didn't expect to be able to emulate anything, but I thought, you know, maybe by osmosis I can get some tricks from him. What was it like being Remnick's assistant? I was just in awe. I mean, I think in the beginning I was just so nervous. and But, you know, and later on, you know, you, we got comfortable and with each other. and Because, you know, when you're assistant to someone, you're really learning their personality and how they work and what they like and the things they like. And... Eventually it happens, but in the beginning, you're just sort of tiptoeing around, hoping you don't screw everything up. <laughs> right, just trying to not make mistakes. <laughs> exactly. What did you learn from him? I mean, part of it is just uh, his, his work discipline, which is uh, insane. And just, just the way, you know, he, when, when he's working on stories, the way he approaches research and, and, and interviews and things before he's doing the story and as he's doing it in, in the end. And then especially what what he looks for when he's editing i mean his standards are like ins- you know incredibly high it's okay to say insane <laughs> <laughs> but it's helpful as you as a writer go it, go about it and how long did that last it lasted just over a year and a half and you started to feel like the itch to go yeah i did go abroad again i did i felt it and so you know i told him and he understood because he was that's what he had done and so I started to apply for like fellowships and things that would help fund me to get back mm-hmm. abroad. And at that point, was Nigeria the place you wanted to be? No, but I knew I wanted to be in Africa. Mm-hmm. And where'd you go? Well, so I ended up getting a fellowship to cover gay rights in Africa. So I was in a couple of places. I was in Nigeria, Uganda, and South Africa. And how did you come to settle in Lagos? So after that was done, then I got a small grant to cover the religious violence there. It only lasted a couple of weeks, but... It kind of just got me that plane ticket to get there. Right, it was like enough to get you there. Yeah, and then I was like, okay, I'm here. And then after that, because there's just so much to do in Nigeria, assignment work was enough to just stay there. And then I was able to travel around the continent as well. I mean, you've been in all these places, particularly in Africa. You've reported on all these different 
kinds of stories. And I'm interested in whether you feel like there's a sort of like central theme to the stories you've been doing, whether they are uh, like can kind of come together to tell some kind of larger story. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that especially within the past few years, I've been interested in how people deal with cer certain situations, how people deal with larger themes, whether it's, so for example, if I, I wanna write about you know the, the LRA in Uganda and the havoc they wreak there, I've been interested more in like how people at the heart of it have dealt with it, whether it's pushing back against it or sort of creating normalcy out of that. I've, I, I think I've been more interested I think I'm drawn to extreme stories, but I'm more interested in not just talking about the extremeness, but the people at the heart of it and how they deal with that. The story that seems to most sort of exemplify that is that uh, that love story that you wrote. Right. Brusco and Anise. Right. Two people had been kidnapped by the LRA in Uganda, and she had been forced to marry him. Right. And then afterwards, after many, many horrors, including rape and and all sorts of other things uh they came back together afterwards right right there's something about that story that takes you a while to wrap your head around right um but i think that 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 fits with what you're talking about it's like this is here are these this absolutely horrific era in uganda mm -hmm. uh, and out of it comes a very very hard to understand love story, but seems to work for these two. Right, exactly. And you know, when I was writing about slavery in Mauritania, I mean, I didn't want, I didn't, I, you know, part of it is I don't want to write about people as victims, because especially Africans have been portrayed as victims for so long in Western coverage of the continent. You know, people go there and, you know, understandably feel pity for people in horrible situations, but then it kind of sometimes just stops there. And I feel like, these people, you know, there are other sides to them too. You know, there, there's, there's joy and there's strength and resilience. So, you know, if I'm writing about slavery, why, I, I want to talk about the people who have been slaves and how horrible that was, but I also want to talk about people who are like doing something about it too, because there's always someone, someone doing something about any horrible situation. And I feel like a responsibility to do that in Africa because that narrative of victimhood has gone on for so long. Just to sort of paint a fuller picture of the people you're writing yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. And of these situations, because stories could feel one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even still, people see the can sometimes see the place as this place of despair and hopelessness, and it's not that. There's a lot of interesting things going on there. Why do you think that story isn't isn't one that the American media is more interested in? I think, I mean, I think they are interested. Um, you know, for example, my, I was telling someone that my motto for 2015 is all positive everything, which doesn't mean that I'm writing stories that are, you know, not without nuance, but I'm actively trying to focus on stories that tell this other side of the picture, right? And there's been, there's been interest in these stories, like people want these stories. I think just it's hard if you're not there, you're not living there 24-7, you're just popping in to know that these things exist. You have to kind of have to be there. And, you know, how many publications here have full-time people in Africa? 
But you're not a full-time person in No, Africa. I'm not. But I'm like now plugged in to mm-hmm. these things. And What's an example of uh, All Positive in 2015? What are the kinds of stories you're looking <laughs> to tell? Well, so for example, I mean, you know, everything, nothing's ever fully positive, but I just came back from South Africa in February. And South Africa is a fascinating place, but it's dealing with some problems where the governing party is not really holding itself accountable. There's problems of sort of corruption. And, um, but there's this amazing badass woman who's the, what the country calls a public protector. And she was there, you know, she was in the anti-apartheid struggle. But, you know, she, she's been going after her old comrades because she believes in South Africa. And she, you know, she exposed the president of sort of using money that he didn't need to use. And she told him he needed to pay it back. And, you know, there's been this crazy campaign against her by the government. But she's just doing incredible things. South Africans love her. But people don't know about her. So that was a great story to do. And I'm also working on the story um, in Congo about about these um, artists and musicians there who they're not activists, but their work is kind of, in a way, just by them doing it, a protest against the complete state failure in Congo, the like, brokenness of the country. Um, you said earlier that you're not a war correspondent, mm-hmm. which I found kind of interesting because uh, Nigeria is at war. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've sort of thrown yourself into, into the middle of that mm-hmm. in some way. I'm interested in that statement and also whether you think going forward you'll want to be sort of more in the teeth of conflict like that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I I definitely am not. I mean, you know, when we were talking about when I was on the way to Chubak and those vigilantes pulled out their guns to start hunting, you know, what was running through my mind was, you know, I, I, I didn't come here to give my life for this, you know? I mean... I mean, obviously, I, I was willing to risk it to, to get the story, but I'm not one of those people who thinks, you know, uh, any story is worth someone's life. But at the same time, I think that, especially conflicts that are undercovered like this one, I, I do feel that draw. But I, th- but it's not ser- necessarily because of the adrenaline rush or anything. Right. Yeah, you don't, you don't yeah. have that kind of like a war correspondent. Like I need to be on the front lines. No, thing. no. But I do feel. It's like it's the human drama at the middle of it that's that feels very compelling to me, and also the sense that no one else is there. So, on on a human side, a I want to see what's happening, and on a journalist side, I want to see I want to see what's happening. You know, uh, since no one else is. Uh, one more question, I'll let you get out of here. How does your book fit with All Positive in 2015? I mean, the book is about people who are standing up to extremism in Africa. You know, I was not interested in writing another dark, depressing book about Africa. You know, I'm obviously going to talk about the circumstances of extremism in a few places there. The heart of these stories are about these very ordinary and flawed, but also brave people who are doing things to push back against it and live normal lives. It's a positive thing, you know, and it's seeing these Africans as full, interesting people. Well, I look forward to the book. Yeah. Alexis, thanks for uh, taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. 
Thanks to them. Thanks very much to Alexis for taking the time. Uh, if you have not read those stories that we were talking about, they're in the show notes. Go read them. Alexis is doing uh, really important work and pretty rare work. There are not a lot of people who are writing the kinds of stories about Africa that Alexis is. And uh, I don't know. Read them. Then keep reading them. There's going to be a lot more. Uh, thanks also to our sponsors, Tiny Letter. Love you guys. Go get yourself a Tiny Letter. And if you don't have a Tiny Letter and you have nothing else to read, go to iTunes. Leave us a review. It is uh, actually super helpful to the show. It's like what controls those charts. And we want to go up on the charts. So go leave us a review. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>